Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the care of adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease with Dr. Cece Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology and assistant professor of pediatrics and hematology oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So Cece, maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. So I like to call myself a lifespan hematologist and both my clinical and research interests center around the care of young adults with sickle cell disease um, as they transition from pediatric to adult care. We know it's a really high risk time for them. And so all the work that I do both in the clinic and in the research setting is about making that process better. Is sickle cell disease a cancer? Tell us more about what exactly sickle cell disease is and why it's being seen by an oncologist? That's a great question. So actually, sickle cell disease is an inherited condition of the red blood cell. Um, and so many people are familiar with anemia and, and um, conditions of that sort, uh, which uh, affect red blood cell and hemoglobin. And that's what sickle cell disease um, uh, is a condition of. And it's genetic, so patients are born with it. And what it, it manifests as is a normal red blood cell is kind of squishy. Um, I like to think of them as jelly donuts because I like food. But when you have <laughs> sickle cell disease because of a genetic mutation, instead of your red blood cells being squishy and malleable, they can be really stiff and misshapen like a sickle. They can be shaped like a sickle or a banana. And so if you think of your blood cells as pipes, Imagine if you had your jelly donuts kind of going through those pipes, bouncing off the walls, taking oxygen to where it needs to go, and you replace slow cells with sticky, stiff, fragile, misshapen red blood cells, like sickle cells that are scratching up the red blood vessels, sticking together, causing blockages, impeding flow, um, then you can imagine all the complications that patients with sickle cell face. So most saliently are what patients... Um, have to really, really deal with a lot is pain. That's the thing that brings them to the hospital on an acute, meaning unplanned basis. But any part of our body where there are small blood vessels, those misshapen cells can get clogged up in those uh, blood vessels and cause problems. It's important for patients with sickle cell disease to have regular care by an oncologist who also understands hematology, the blood, um, to make sure that all their organs are in tip-top condition and that we treat anything before there's a problem. Now, I would think that if you're a pediatric patient um, and this is an inherited condition, you might have a sense of whether or not you have sickle cell disease based on whether your parents did. But somebody had to start with the genetic mutation to begin with. So how many of your patients actually know that they have sickle cell disease from the time that they're born or, or are children? And how many of them present to you acutely and you're actually rendering that diagnosis? 
In the United States, we have the benefit of the newborn screen that all babies born in hospitals, uh, when they're when they're um, they get their heel poked and get that little spot of blood that can test for a variety of genetic conditions and sickle cell disease is included in those conditions. So if a child has an abnormal newborn screen, oftentimes the pediatrician will refer them to a hematologist uh, for further evaluation and workup. And sometimes even if it's abnormal to sell, to show sickle cell trait, which means that you don't have the disease, but you can be a carrier. And if your partner has the disease, you can have a child with sickle cell disease. We can figure that out from the newborn screen. So these days we know pretty early on, which is critical to the survival of our young children, our infants and toddlers. Um, in other countries, the newborn screen isn't quite um, as universal. And so sometimes children can present with swelling of the hands and feet. That's something called dactyl which is pretty rare these days um, as a presenting sign. Um, and there are some patients with more milder forms of sickle cell disease that don't know until they're uh, older um, children or young adults. But most of the time we get them in our catchment when they are young because of the newborn screen and can really wrap our arms around them and give them the care they need. Let's suppose you're a newborn baby. And you had your heel poked and they tell you that you have sickle cell disease. Well, presumably they don't tell you, they tell your parents and you get referred to a pediatric oncologist. If that means that your red blood cells are now sickling and are more like bananas than squishy jelly donuts, what can you do about that? I mean, is it reversible? At this time, the only cure for sickle cell disease or way to reverse those cells is by replacing your bone marrow with another person's, but that's pretty rare. I hope later in the show we get to talk a little bit more about therapies coming down the pipeline for patients, but right now that's the only way to reverse those cells. However, if you are a little baby and your parents find out that you have sickle cell disease, the benefit of coming and talking to a pediatric oncologist and hematologist who knows about this is that you now have a team member, somebody on your team that can help your baby or you, if you're the baby, stay healthy and safe. And so what that looks like as a toddler is getting them started on penicillin prophylactically or in advance before there's any problems. Because we found that as early as, excuse me, or as recently as the late 70s, there was kind of a peak in infancy and toddlerhood of death because uh, patients with sickle cell were getting really bad infections. But we found that if we vaccinate them and give them prophylactic penicillin, they live well into adulthood. The challenge becomes how do we help them when they go from peds to adults? And that's what I work on in my work. So just to, to back up a little bit, when you say prophylactic penicillin, do you mean like every day? For like the rest of their life? Uh, so definitely every day for the first five years of their life. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. But what it does is it protects them against really bad infections like pneumococcus. You know, patients with sickle cell disease, their spleen doesn't really work as well as somebody without sickle cell. And because of that, they are susceptible to certain types of infections. And that penicillin every day, just like a vitamin, helps them to stay healthy and safe. So why is there this transition then from childhood to young adulthood? What's the difference in terms of the disease and how it's managed that requires a specialist like you? Well, I think it's a, 
a variety of things. It's not just the disease, but it's just becoming a young person and learning how to navigate the healthcare system on your own, too. You know, earlier we talked about newborns and, you know, if you were a newborn and got found out you had sickle cell disease, that your parents would help you take you to the doctor, manage your care, give you that prophylactic penicillin. But the beautiful part about being a young adult is you can start to assume some of that care for yourself. So it's pretty multifactorial is a word I always like to use. And, you know, I like to think that I was a pretty smart young adult. Like I made some good decisions. I'm a doctor now, but I still did some foolish things as a 16, 17, 18 year old. And that's without a chronic disease. So in sickle cell disease, what we can do as lifespan hematologists and as healthcare providers is really help our patients as their disease complications may become a little more severe, as they're learning to manage themselves, as they're learning to navigate a pretty complex healthcare system, and as they're just trying to be productive, happy young adults. And so what kinds of things do you talk about with your patients? I mean, it sounds like after they're five years old, they're no longer on penicillin, but there's still no way to reverse the condition. So you're still at risk of all of those sticky, misshapen blood cells forming clots all over your body, which presumably can cause all kinds of problems. So, you know, is it just a matter of telling your patients what to watch for and when to seek help? Or are there things that they can do to reduce the risk of, of clots and and other problems that sickling can cause? Absolutely. So I want to answer your question in two parts. First, what other parts of the body does sickle cell affect? How does that show up for patients across their lives? So one of the things that our patients most deal with is pain um, every single day. So when those blood vessels get clogged up by those sickle cells and those juicy jelly donut cells can't get through, that means oxygen isn't going to where it needs to in our bodies. And because of that, that can result in pretty bad bone pain for patients with sickle cell disease. And this is the thing that really affects their quality of life. As young students, trying to learn and keep up in school. If you have to be admitted to the hospital several times per year, you can imagine how frustrating that can be um, as a scholar. Other parts of the body that are affected by, by sickle cell disease are numerous, though. Patients with sickle cell disease can have something called acute chest syndrome, which is a really bad infection of the lungs that can be very challenging. They can even have strokes as young people, which is one of the reasons that compelled me as a med student to pursue hematology was seeing a sickle cell patient, eight years old, who had a stroke. In pediatrics, in order to kind of get a jump on these things, we do several things. We do screenings, um, something called a transcranial Doppler, which is basically like an ultrasound of your head where you can look at the blood vessels and make sure you're not at risk for having a stroke. Um, we always make sure that our patients are their eyes are checked because sometimes in sickle cell disease, you can have vision changes. Um, and a regular follow-up with he a hematologist can help you notice any changes before they cause problems. One of the biggest things and one of the things we know works and helps prolong life in sickle cell patients is the use of a medication called hydroxyurea. Now, some of your listeners may be familiar because sometimes this can be used in patients who have um, certain cancer diagnoses. But in sickle cell disease, the dose that we use is much lower and the way that we use it is a bit different. And we know that it kind of helps 
you have more juicy fat jelly donut cells than bananas. And so your body overall does better in the long term. So just to follow up on a few things that you just said, first off, uh, taking that last comment about hydroxyurea, making you have more jelly donut like blood cells than sickling bananas. So is it true that if you have sickle cell disease, not all of your blood cells are bananas, and it is possible to increase the number of jelly donut uh, blood cells that you have instead of bananas using hydroxyurea? Absolutely. And that is for up until recently, the really the only FDA approved medication that we have had for our patients is hydroxyurea to increase the amount of non-sickle cells, jelly donut cells, and ensure uh, that your pain complications are lower and that your organs can really get the oxygen they need to thrive. So the obvious question is, why not use more hydroxyurea and make all of your blood cells jelly donuts? But hold that thought, because first we need to take a short break for a medical minute. But stay tuned to learn more about adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease with my guest, Dr. C.C. Calhoun. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital. Fifteen care centers offer access to oncologists committed to providing patients with cancer and blood diseases individualized, innovative care. Find a Smilo Care Center near you at YaleCancerCenter.org. There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Cece Calhoun. We're talking about the care of adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease. And right before the break, Cece was mentioning that while sickle cell disease is completely unreversible, irreversible, um, that actually using a drug called hydroxyurea can help your body to create more of these, quote, jelly donut cells, which are normal red blood cells, and less of these, quote, banana-like cells, um, which are the sickle cells. So my question to you, Cece, before we had the break, um, is why not just give more hydroxyurea? I mean, if it helps your body to produce more normal cells and less sickle cells, wouldn't that be a way to kind of sort of reverse it? I would love if it could be totally reversed by hydroxyurea. But we know that when our patients are awesome, take their medications every day as prescribed, there's still an upper limit to how many uh, of those juicy fat jelly donut cells they can replace. Um, they can 
produced to replace the banana cell. So there's a threshold of how uh, effective the drug can be, but it can really, really help enough to help your organs stay healthy. So this hydroxyurea is something that you're taking every day? Yes. For your whole life? Yep. Wow. You know, the other thing, Cece, that you mentioned before the break, um, and I wanted to pick up on as well, was this concept of pain and the fact that many of these patients, they present with pain and they have pain every day, um, which impairs their ability to, you know, concentrate at school or maybe play sports or so what do you do about that? I mean, are these patients treated with daily painkillers or do you tell them to simply wait until they have pain and then prescribe pain medication? I mean, how do they get through their day-to-day life um, if they're in pain every day? Yeah. So sickle cell patients are warriors and you'll often see that described because despite having pain, a variable severity, they manage to live life and be productive anyway. That's one of the most awesome things about working with sickle cell patients. So in terms of pain prevention, what can we do? Number one, hydroxyurea, get more juicy cells around so you have less pain. And recently, there are a couple of medications um, on the market that help with pain prevention. Also, just keeping yourself well hydrated, My patients are so wonderful in that they often know their bodies. They know the triggers for their pain and what situations make their pain worse and what kind of things can make their pain better. So really being attuned to those things. In terms of addressing pain acutely when it happens and it's not planned, um, we have a couple of things in our toolkit. Yes, pain medication is something that we give frequently for for pain, but we can also use blood cell blood red blood cell transfusions if we need to if somebody is having pain often. But many times we can't predict when the pain will come or how severe it will be. And so because of that, our patients have to get care in the ED sometimes to get treatment for their pain. So, Cece, you mentioned something that that I found kind of intriguing. You said that we have medications for pain prevention. Really? Like what? Yeah, yeah. Hot off the press. I know. So um, (laughs) recently there's been a a FDA approved medication, um, Adecbeo, the brand, the um, generic name is Crizinolizumab, but I try not to say that because crizinolizumab, but that can be used uh, to prevent pain as an infusion um, given once monthly, really, once patients are kind of like on it regularly. Um, Another medication that's recently been approved is something called Oxbrita. And really what that does is increase patients with sickle cell disease, um, their hemoglobin. And so the thought is, is if their hemoglobin is better, they have, uh, they may in turn have less pain, but the primary medication that was kind of um, is out there for uh, pain prevention is uh, Adecbeo. So that sounds like a pretty good deal, right? If instead of having pain every day, if you had an infusion once a month, does that infusion kind of really get rid of the the chances of having pain or is it not really? So I think that the medication is pretty new and 
Patients are people, so that means each of them are individuals. And so I've had some patients who it's worked great for. I've had some patients that we just have to try other things. I think the wonderful thing about uh, being a physician scientist in sickle cell or even being a patient right now who has sickle cell is that it's such a fertile time for discovery in terms of sickle cell disease, how to prevent complications and how to cure it. So you just got to work with your hematologist to find the right regimen for you. So I want to pick up on all of that discovery and some of the new advances um, that are going on in terms of sickle cell research. But before that, I had one other question about kind of the complications. You had mentioned before the break, one of the impetuses for you to become a pediatric hematologist was an eight-year-old who had a stroke, which just, I mean, is heartbreaking to me. Um, But clearly, if you think about these sickle cells, it makes sense, right? These sickle cells kind of glom together and they cut off blood supply to a part of your brain. That's called a stroke. Yeah. Now, when we think about, you know, patients, older patients um, who may be at risk of stroke or who may be at risk of heart attack or who may be at risk of other clotting, whether it's in their lungs or in their legs or whatever, we often use blood thinners. So, Are sickle cell patients put on blood thinners to kind of prevent these complications since we know that they're at risk of getting clots? So the blockages that occur in sickle cell disease are a little bit different than your uh, normal blood clot, which is caused by a, a different series of events. And so for patients with sickle cell disease, though they are at an increased risk to have those kind of traditionally what we think of blood clots, we don't put them on blood thinners to try to prevent complications. With sickle cell disease, we know those blockages can be stuck like a clot or they can be transient, come and go because of the cells are sticking together. It's not like the other proteins in your body are swimming over there and making a huge clot. What we do in our young people really to maximize stroke prevention is we do screenings like that transcranial Doppler I mentioned. And if we notice any kind of abnormality at all, we have a couple of options. One, we can start them on chronic transfusion um, to prevent, uh, to decrease the amount of sickle cells circulating in their blood and give them more normal cells. Or, you know, if somebody has been on chronic transfusions doing well, their transcranial Dopplers looks fine, we can switch them to, again, hydroxyurea, put more jelly donuts around, have less sickle cells, decrease the risk of complications. And that's, again, why it's important to connect with your friendly hematologist so we can help you on that journey. Yeah, but presumably you would have already been on the hydroxyurea. So if that transcranial Doppler finds that, you know, you're at increased risk, you know, I guess the transfusion is your only alternative. But the the issue there is if you keep getting transfusions on a regular basis, doesn't that increase your risk of transfusion reactions and potentially ultimately developing antibodies such that there are fewer and fewer blood types that you can actually take? You are on it and I love it. So absolutely. Um, For patients who have chronic transfusions, there are a variety of uh, risks that come along with that. There's a, obviously a clear benefit in that it makes keeps you safe and protects you against stroke and may decrease your pain. But you're absolutely right. Our bodies recognize things that aren't foreign. 
Um, that's why we really work uh, in tandem and together with our transfusion medicine colleagues to do extended typing in patients with sickle cell disease to prevent that risk of developing antibodies and make sure that we can find blood for them. Another big risk is something called iron overload, where excess iron from the blood deposits in your different organs like your liver, your heart, or your eyes. So we measure that regularly. And again, medicine is so cool because we're always ideally moving forward. And so, you know, there's also a procedure called erythrocytophoresis, which I don't too much mind saying five times fast, but I like it, which can help decrease that risk of iron overload. And it's just what I call a more efficient process. So we do what we need to do to keep our patients healthy and safe for sure. So Cece, let's talk a little bit about some of the exciting advances in terms of sickle cell disease. Tell us about what you think are the most exciting things that are on the forefront that you think are really going to make a difference for your patients. So, you know, I think there are a lot of medications in the works to address um, pain and complications of sickle cell disease. But one of the things I think that is most exciting um, is the idea of a cure through gene therapy. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, and that's pretty awesome. There's been some um, um, like regular like media, the New York Times has published about it and other, the Washington Post as well, about how we can use different scientific technologies like CRISPR technology or use different vectors like viral vectors to take somebody's stem cells and correct that defect in their um, DNA that caused uh, them to be making sickle cells and then give it back to them in a safe way. And then when those new and improved cells from their body start to replicate, they are no longer um, affected by sickle cell disease. They may still make some sickle cells, but will effectively be cured or be like somebody who just has the trait. Um, and that's one of the things I think that's most exciting the possibility of a cure. Is that any time in our future or is that like, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years from now? No, the time is totally now. So there are clinical, active clinical trials going on to better understand the safety and efficacy of this process in patients. Um, And so that is that is now that's happening now. So. Wow. That's super exciting. What else is going on? So um, I think the other main things are the development of oral medications to improve pain and to decrease complications from sickle cell disease. That one medication, Adecveo, the way that it works, um, it's called something called a P-selectin inhibitor. And so there are more medications coming around that that look at that. Um, there are some another some additional oral medications coming uh, that target different mechanisms and other blood problems like thalassemia. And they want to see if those medications, <clears throat> excuse me, can work well in patients with sickle cell disease. So I think the fact that we are shining a light on this community of people with sickle cell disease and that we as a scientific community have committed to making their quality of life better That's the thing that's most exciting to me, because oftentimes I think my patients feel unseen and unheard. Um, And so it's great to to see so many people, uh, brilliant people standing up for them and helping to make their lives better. That's awesome. I guess the last question that I have is really with regards to clinical trials. I mean, it sounds like there's so many great things on the horizon. Um, 
Do you find that young people, adolescents are interested in clinical trials and willing to participate? Um, Are there barriers to participation? How has that been going along? Yeah, so... Anybody who has lived with sickle cell or chronic pain, I think, is enthusiastic about finding a way to have a better life and to um, have a better quality of life and to find a cure. When it comes to clinical trials, there's a careful balance between understanding um, clinical studies and not wanting to feel like an experiment and understanding how um, the medical system can wrap around you to keep you safe as we understand um, more about how to help you have a cure. And so when I think about my young people, are they interested in clinical trials? I think that they have a lot of excellent questions about the benefits and risks of participating in clinical trials. But many of them, ultimately, when we sit and talk and take the time, um, they understand that it is their contribution to not only their health, but the community of sickle cell patients. Um, And that's the beauty of having providers that have known you through the lifespan. You have a relationship. They know that I care for them. They can trust me. And so when I offer them this option uh, of a cure or for participation, then there's a little bit more willingness to enroll. Dr. Cece Calhoun is an assistant professor of medicine in hematology and assistant professor of pediatrics and hematology oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.